You're listening to Black Music Scene, a product of the Black Orchestral Network, where our mission is to cultivate community, lift our voices, and tell our stories. This is our archive, where we uplift the stories of living legends and unsung heroes in Black classical music. In today's episode, we'll meet Rufus Olivier Jr., the principal bassoonist for the San Francisco Opera and San Francisco Ballet. He joined the symphony in 1977 at only 21 years of age after winning the position for second bassoon. When the San Francisco Symphony split from the San Francisco Opera, Rufus auditioned for the opera and won the principal position. In 1992, he won the principal bassoon spot for the San Francisco Ballet as well. He has recorded many movie, video, CD, and TV soundtracks, including Disney's Never Cry Wolf and San Francisco Opera's Grammy-nominated CD, Orpheus and Eurydice. He was even awarded a Grammy for the soundtrack Elmo in Grouchland. Over several decades, Rufus Olivier Jr. has led a career very much worthy of uplifting and celebrating. We had an amazing time sitting down with him and getting to know him. He's an exuberant guy full of laughs who certainly mastered the art of the bassoon and navigating life one step at a time. Hello, my name is Rufus Olivier Jr. I was born in Watts, California. My mother name is Gurley Olivier and my father Rufus Sr. Rufus Olivier Sr. And I have four sisters, four older sisters. I'm the uh, principal bassoonist of the San Francisco Opera and the principal bassoonist of the San Francisco Ballet. I never really had a plan, but I had a wish. And I think when I started taking lessons, all my lessons were PTA scholarships, things like that. My parents never paid a penny for a private lesson. So I was trying to get any PTA scholarship, anything, 100 bucks here. I think I was in junior high when I got my first bassoon lessons over at USC. I remember getting to this place. It was, it was part of the USC extension, and it was in a place called the Clark House. It was an old mansion. Heifetz taught there. All these people taught there, and I took my lessons in this little room with Ray Nolan. And... <laughs> One of the first things he taught me was, he says, you know, if you grease your thumb and your nose, your fingers will slide much better on the back of your horn. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's why I'm here. <laughs> I got to grease my thumbs. <laughs> but it was, it was great. He was a fabulous teacher, fabulous man. Played for Warner Brothers. He was a Warner Brother contract player. One day he asked me to come if he could drive me home. I said, heck yeah, I don't want to take the bus. And he drove me home. And then he said, can I talk to your mother? I said, sure. Came in the house and I'm standing there. This is my teacher, mom, you know, because they didn't know. And um, he just said, Mrs. Olivia, I think your son could be a bassoon player. It shocked me, you know? So that seed was in there. You know, I, I knew I was gonna play something. I knew I was gonna be something. My father had to quit playing in the big bands 
before the war because he had five kids. And he told me, he always told me, you know, I, I stopped playing music so I could take care of you guys, you know, because he said if I was playing my saxophone, jazz, everywhere, I wouldn't be home. I would never be home. So he sort of gave it all up and worked at the Department of Water and Power. So I was thinking, how can I play music all the time and go home every night? Bam! A symphony orchestra. I could go play an orchestra and I can go home after the show. <laughs> it was perfect. I could raise a family, play music, and go home and raise my kids. My dad was not a... He was sort of quiet. He, he wasn't forceful. He wasn't any, you know, uh, domineering at all. He never told me I was better than anybody. He just said I was just as good as, it, you know, other people. That was, you know, you are equal, you are just as good, no matter what anybody, whatever you go through. Before World War II, before he went off to fight the war, he was a Buffalo soldier, by the way. Before going to war, he was a saxophone player in Louisiana, and a good one. During the Depression, he could take care of a whole neighborhood playing the saxophone in big bands, because it paid. And then when he went off to war, he went to Italy, Naples. And uh, he, he always talked about me getting over there. He said, you got to go to Naples and meet the Italians. And he said, they treated us really well over there, and you have to go. And I did. I, a couple of years ago, I actually made a little pilgrimage to Naples and went to the opera house, 400-year-old opera house. Um, he, he had this stone, and it had a carving of a buffalo, 92nd Division. And this stone was always laying around the house. And we would use it to keep doors open. We would keep windows open with it. It was it was just a thing. And it wasn't until the last 10 years or so, they're like, who has that thing? <laughs> I want that. I want that stone. One of my sisters. <laughs> but I thought, now everybody wants that little stone, you know, the buffalo soldier. And so uh, he went off. He went off to war. And my mother... And the three girls came to California with her, her father and sisters. And uh, when he got out of the service, he, he met them back in L.A. And that's where I was born in L.A. And I remember one night, I was, I guess in the kitchen, he was talking to a crazy uncle of mine. He was really nuts. You know, everybody has a crazy uncle, right? And I remember my uncle saying to him, you know, Rufus, tell me the truth. Would you have five kids? I mean, if you had to do it all over again. And that's, and my dad, he actually got very angry. He said, he just told her, he said, are you nuts? Yes, I would do it again. I love my kids. And I heard this from around the corner. You see what I'm saying? Are you crazy? You're crazy. He, was, he said, you were crazy for even saying that. And I, and I was in the kitchen. I'll never, ever forget that, you know, like, wow. He wants us, you know? <laughs> yeah, he defended us. And um, I, I, and then, then later he told me, he said, I don't see this, he's crazy. You know? <laughs> playing Aida, okay? Margaret Price and Pavarotti were the singers. 
and and so now you imagine you know and these were regulars right this is why my opening night was with domingo my first opera was with domingo and shirley verrett so i'm seeing them Lantine price she comes every time she come to town she look at me and wink right and so we're playing aida the tickets are already being scalped for fourteen hundred dollars and this was back in, in the 80s okay so what happens now Lantine price is in town because she the next opera i'm playing is with her and the the, the carmelites i think it is well one night Margaret Price can't sing. And so, well, Lantine's here, and that's her her seminal role. Aida is what made her famous in 1957. No one does that like her. So now, that night, <laughs> Pavarotti and Lantine Price are gonna sing. of them just went to the wall. They pushed the envelope of artistry and singing. And I could feel the hair in the back of my head stand up. I was almost getting dizzy. It was so good. And it must have been good because the audience, the audience gave 15 minute ovations after each act. After each for 15 minutes, we had to sit there. <laughs> After each act, they had to do that. And it was so, it, they actually had to open up another hall and simulcast it across the street to 5,000 more people at reduced ticket prices because it was just unfreaking believable. so to speak, you know. And then playing that thing, that obligato thing with Lantine Price. Uh, um, oh, my Lord. It's just un unreal. When I started playing, I used to go to rehearsals in the town of Inglewood. Inglewood is known, right now they have a brand new football stadium, it used to be the Forum. But at one time, Inglewood, even though it was just a number of blocks away, it was sort of almost like a headquarters for the Ku Klux Klan, you know? And so my orchestra rehearsals was in Inglewood. And um, I remember one night, I would go in sort of early after school, I would take a bus and I'd have to take the bus home. It's like 10 at night, and I'm taking the bus. And I remember one night after rehearsal, most of the kids' parents were picking them up. Everybody's picking My parents didn't drive. They didn't have cars. So I had to go everywhere on a bus. I had to carry my everywhere. And, and in order to get home, I used to carry little karate sticks up my sleeve so I could make it home from rehearsals. And so one night, I'm at the bus stop, me and a... And all I had with me was a bassoon and an album of a Mozart bassoon concerto. 
and a bunch of uh, these clan type guys drove up and they were at the corner and they start coming at me with chains and clubs and golf things and and the bus was at the other light they were coming and that bus got there just in time for me to jump on before they got me and the bus driver a black man jumped off the bus and grabbed one of the guys he said mess with me and pushed him back and it could possibly save my life but that's that's what i did to go to rehearsals <laughs> to go to go to my rehearsals i literally would carry a stick up my sleeve just so i could make it home from rehearsals and and that's why I seem like a joyous guy because I have something to compare to my life then and my you know what I mean I, I it was a good life then but to get to this spot I, I it's very hard for me to complain about there's too much light in my eye or this oh, you know the temperature too loud all I can say is I'm alive you know <laughs> and so um I made it from rehearsals alive because I was taking buses 10 11 at night just to get to, or to youth orchestras and stuff at, at, and concerts because my parents didn't drive. And I never could tell my parents any of these stories, ever, because they would stop me. So it was secret. Happy to me, it may just be just being normal, just, just being even killed to me seems for me is enough you know you know have my bad days have my good days uh, sometimes i'm driving home over to golden gate bridge and i want to jump off after oh god i missed that lit you know anyway but um um i think because i have things to compare unhappiness with and things i've seen uh i'm a very 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 good learner by watching in other words, when I see somebody do something that doesn't work anywhere in life, I ain't going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to have to, you know, I don't have to experience that myself, you know. And I've had guys in high school or junior high where they, they would overdose and things like that. I've, I've seen um, people shot up. I had a cousin shot up, you know, and... Um, it wasn't his fault, or he wasn't a gangbanger, just in the line of fire, you know. You know, things you see, you know. Uh, I've just been able to, to learn from other people's mistakes and, and, and not have to go through the same thing, you know. Being able to go home every night after playing music is a miracle. And, you know, it's a miracle uh, to be able to, to go home every night. See your kids, see your wife. Uh, you know, a lot of many musicians, you know, get to do that and make a living playing music. That's almost unheard of, you know. So uh, uh, that makes me very happy. <laughs> this is Black Music Scene, a product of the Black Orchestra Network an organization dedicated to creating an inclusive and equitable environment for black people in the orchestral field. We see a world where black orchestral artists easily find reflections of themselves and their complexities in the history and future of orchestral music.
After sharing his story, Rufus took some time to sit down to chat with two of our BON steering committee members, Joy Payton-Stevens and Titus Underwood. They were so curious to learn more about Rufus and his upbringing, his experience with unions, and how Rufus found place and belonging in almost every space he occupied. Beginning your orchestral career, what were you prepared for and what took you by surprise as a young man? What was I prepared for and what took me by surprise? Um, I've always gone day to day. I've never thought, oh, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this. I'm just gonna go do the best thing I can today and that day is gonna take care of tomorrow and the next day. I never knew what to expect. Or, or anything like that, but I was always, I'm, even now, I'm sort of a day-to-day -day person. Um, I do the best I can today, and um, it seems to take care of tomorrow pretty pretty well. I really love that philosophy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's a philosophy, it's just a, I don't know what it is. You know, I'm just a bassoon, I'm a bassoon player, remember, <laughs> the little gray cells aren't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems to be working. So. so as you were coming up in your career, did you have a team of people around you? Did you have mentors? Did you have um, people who were in your corner who were really helping you uh, navigate the, the orchestral career? Um, yeah, I had, I had mentors. I had tour mentors. But uh, <laughs> I don't know about all the navigation and all that sort of thing. Uh, the main thing that... I wanted to do at an early age was to just play music and it didn't matter what kind at the time I think I wanted to be a musician since I was six years old I have four sisters older I was born into them harmonizing in the background I was born into my father before World War II before he went off to fight the war he was a Buffalo soldier by the way before going to war he was a saxophone player in Louisiana and a good one and so it was just music was twirling around my house all the time. So I knew I was going to be a musician. I didn't know what kind or what. Although, like I said, I heard a lot of violin. I heard a lot of classical music growing up. A lot of jazz, a lot of classical, a lot of everything. I had a rock and roll band. I had everything. You know, I was in a jazz band in high school. So I pretty much played almost everything from the avant-garde uh, to uh, there's a fellow in LA I played with Horace Tapscott, the Pan African People's Orchestra, and that was all the community. You know, I grew up in South Central, and we played all the time. Horace's goal was to get as many people in the streets playing music and writing music, so we would play compositions by black composers every month at this church, wow. and. I can't tell you how many people went through, we call it the ARC, the ARC orchestra, but uh, so we, we just shortened it, we call it the ARC, and things like that, along with high school jazz band, along with um, top 40 pop band, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. I was playing saxophone too, until I was about 17, so I was doing both. I don't know how to navigate anything. Um, <laughs> I, I never had an idea of navigating. When you say navigate, it sounds like there's a plan. Um, I never really had a plan, but I had a wish. And uh, that was 
apps we call it navigating that was it that mm. was my brain you know i started playing with the philharmonic when i was about 17 or 18 and zubin had me play a concerto i think it was 18 he played a little e minor and zubin was standing in the wings and sydney hart was, was conducting and after i finished zubin came over and said you're gonna play with us from now on you know I said, fine with me. <laughs> so I played with him, um, would go around with the Phil. At the time, Calvin Simmons, the great black conductor, was the assistant conductor at LA Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. So we would split the orchestra in half. I would go with Calvin's half sometimes when we do student stuff, and they let me play principal bassoon. And so uh, from there, um, I think I did some opera gigs. So I was on the road for six weeks with Goldowski Opera out of New York. I was about 19 or something. And um, uh, then I got a, a gig with uh, Neville Mariner's band, or orchestra, excuse me. Neville Mariner's group in L.A., the L.A. Chamber Orchestra. And at the, about six weeks later, I auditioned for San Francisco Symphony, and I got in there. So I was, by then I was 21. So I became a member of them when I was 21. And from, from that, at second bassoon, the opera opened up three years later, auditioned for that, became principal of the opera in 1980. And then in 91, the principal of the ballet opened up and auditioned for that and became principal of the ballet. So I've been doing that for, it's been San Francisco about 45 years now. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's so, like I said, I don't know navigating, things falling. I'm also was surrounded by some of the greatest players in the world. You know, I was. You guys are oboe players, right? I'm I was playing player. Quint. <laughs> yeah, I was playing. Um, I mean, think about it. I was playing a quintet with Mark Lipsy. Mm. You know what I'm saying? We yeah. were buds yeah. with Paul Renzi. I was playing with guys who played with Toscanini, who played with Sal. This was my community. This was guys I was playing with. And the most interesting thing about that, they never tried to teach me a thing. They never, they treated me like, you got in the orchestra, you're one of us now. And it was up to me to pick up everything and learn. So I was sitting around the best musicians in the friggin' world, especially woodwind players, you know. I'm careful about saying navigate because there's, there's a little bit of luck going on, you know. There's a little bit of luck. I mean, we're musicians. This is a crazy world, you know. I'm careful about navigating because I couldn't say, okay, do this. Grow up in the ghetto, and then you take lessons, and you get PTA scholarships, and now you come out of the ghetto, and then you go and you get some teachers. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> but I know I play as much as possible every day I, to the to to the point of almost failing high school. I was playing with the doctor's orchestra, the lawyer's orchestra, Philharmonic whenever they needed me, Devil Mariner. So after school, I was just playing my brains out all over L.A. all the time. And my mother was going to kill me, you know. But uh, she would make me get up. I was playing after hours. She called it navigating. That was it. That mm. was my brain, you know. The main thing for me was just getting as much time on my horn as humanly possible. I started playing with the Philharmonic when I was about 17 or 18, and Zubin had me play a concerto. I think it was 18. 
He played a little E minor, and Zubin was standing in the wings, and Sidney Hart was, was conducting. That is incredible. That is incredible. I want to ask you about um, your union work. So, yes. Uh, could you talk about your father's involvement in the union and say a little bit about your own experience as the union guy? My uh, father, yeah, he was. Uh, he worked for the Department of Water and Power. That's gas and electric. And I know, uh, growing up, he was always talking about the union and this and that. You know, my my folks, I was born in L.A., but my folks come out of Louisiana. They're like sharecroppers and stuff. And my grandfather, the oldest person in the family, led the charge. This is before World War II, or during. And that's that migration from the south to, to, to the west. And they wanted to get to California to get civil servant jobs, to get jobs. They got tired of the crap in Louisiana, in the South. And they came here, and they joined unions and this and that, and they, all of a sudden, they had real jobs. They could buy houses. You could, you could uh, count on this. You have a little pension when you retire. And so I grew up in that kind of household where the union was very important. And um, I guess I'm still that way, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, and Very important. what roles can unions play today? And are there certain specific measures that orchestra unions can take to differ from regular practices in other industries? Some new things that are happening, at least, we're in, I mean, remember, I'm in San Francisco mm-hmm. in California, so it's, it's a very broad-minded place. But, but just things like sound levels and ear protection and this, you know, they supply special ear protection for the musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't go deaf by the time I, you know, you're older. And uh, uh, we're protected more from the conductors, you know. Conductors, boy, they're some harsh people, you know. Harsh. And we sort of got them under control with the unions as far as I go. As far as auditions, it's almost like every orchestra has their own little audition policy. I personally prefer blind all the way through because of the things I have heard. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it is shocking. you know. And I'm in the room. <laughs> I remember in one audition, I heard guys saying, do we really want a woman in the brass section? Mm. You know, I heard this crap, you know. It didn't fly with me. I told, I said, you know. Anyway, anyway, they hired her. Okay. But I've heard things like that. And I've heard things like um, from women, you know. There's nothing I like about that woman. Now, what kind of comment is that in an audition? There's nothing I like about that woman. That's weird. <laughs> and I don't like that. Um, I've been stung. I've been burned by the screens coming down. I've been burned in my own city. And I was very staunch about it. I made a lot of noise about it. I said, this person got 10 out of 10 votes at every round. And that's why they should win. And I wouldn't move. I wouldn't budge an inch. And the conductor agreed. And we ended up hiring a you know, black person. And um, I said, it has nothing that, well, you know, you know, some of the players, well, you know, I, oh, so-and-so is good. We played with this person. I said, look, this person spent a lot of money, a lot of time 
coming here and they got 10 out of friggin' 10 votes. They don't get the job. Something is wrong. And the conductor agreed. So uh, that's it's, it's shameful, but I don't know how to change that. The human beings, you can't change human beings. Indeed, it so. is challenging to change human beings. That's, that's what I found in my time on this earth. But um, it's, it's interesting, the things that you know you, you talked about hearing in the audition committee room, um, some of these kind of biased comments, and you know that those biases are following beyond the audition, and it's fantastic that you were in the room to stand up for that person and, and make sure that the process was followed fairly. But um, then there's, like you say, after that, you know, people are kind of on their own, um, even up against some of these biased opinions. Well, you know, you can, you can still change things around. I mean, quite frankly, I fought for more Asians than anybody. I cleared a room once when I pointed out I said, all oh, you people are good. You're good people, nice people. And this was way before people were talking about these things. I said, could there be a level of subliminal racism going on? And this was an Asian person. And they, they, the room, they, everybody just left. <laughs> and then they came back a few days later because they thought about it. Like, you know, I said, yeah, you know, I hear back in the day people talking about Asian players, you know, I hear, you know, uh, I said, yeah. and, and whenever I hear that, I hear somebody talking about Mexicans or Indians or Arabs. Or I'm the next guy on the list. I, <laughs> you see, so if you can't, if I can't fight for every of those guys, who am I? What, what, what's the point yeah. of me being there? Fortunately, I've been around long enough. I have a very good relationship with my orchestra. And I can talk to them about everything now. My latest thing now is conductors. I says, and I told the management, I says, look, the worst person that treats the orchestra is the conductor. Can I go to HR, a conductor who's screaming at a violinist? You know? I said, that's really the culprit, is the conductor. And uh, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, so we try to get those, those clowns under control. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a challenge to, to wrangle some of these personalities, especially around... Um, touchy topics and I think that's a, a, a large catalyst for why we decided to form the Black Orchestral Network so that nobody's feeling like they're bringing these issues alone and carrying all of that by themselves within the organization that they also have to show up to work to and, and with colleagues that you then have to play with you know, yeah. that evening in the opening concert yeah. so yeah well like I said I'm, I'm in a very unique situation um I'm in California, I'm in San Francisco. San Francisco Opera um, is forefront of, I mean, I think, I'm, I mean, we have more diverse singers than I've ever seen in my life. You know, I mean, my opening night, Shirley Verrett, the next night's Leon T. Price, the next night, Grace Bombry. This has been, I mean, we put Leontine on the map in 57, you know? She was discovered, I mean, literally, Adler, same guy that hired me, put Leontine Price on the map. He put me <laughs> on the map. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And so um, he hired Calvin Simmons to do, to do uh, Lady Macbeth of Minsk back in the day. Um, and, and, and the opera has always been that way. You know, we have lead black singers tonight. And, and tomorrow, and in the park concert the next day. And um, 
So it's a it's a nice place to That's work. Right, right. You know, it's always been it's always been a nice place to work. And um, yeah, that well, well there was yeah. there was one thing I want to run past you. Um, I mean, and also did something. And and thank you so much. I mean, everything you talk about is so rich and had so much depth to it. I want to kind of go back to your childhood a little bit. You know, we as black classical musicians know how different our life experiences are from most of our colleagues. And you're a guy from South Central, as you said, um, who was nine years old in 1965. And during and this was during the riots. Yeah. Um, I, I was there. Yeah. I was there. How aware were you of the differences in your experiences from your colleagues around you? Um, what, you mean like in, in my background? Your, your background, say, you, you were in the program with L.A. Phil and and you, your teachers, yeah. but you 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 go you have these different scholarships and different uh, minority scholarships that you're a part of. And did you see the difference between some of your other colleagues who were also pursuing? classical music as well and yours and were you aware of that at the time or was that something that um stuck with you or is it something that you pushed through what was that experience like knowing that you were from wise and you you say you grew up like you said you grew up in the hood so like what how did that affect the way you socialized when you came into say with the orchestra majority white space in the orchestra yeah yeah it was uh it wasn't that hard for me it's never been uh, and i think that's my it's my father's fault uh, as a child, I mean, he he put some seed in my head that I'm the same as everybody, and so I'm never I'll go anywhere, I will go anywhere, and um, you know, uh, and, and L.A. is a big place, so I would I'd have to take buses to this youth orchestra here, youth orchestra there, um, so I never. I just have never had a problem going anywhere, uh, uh, going around different people. I would take myself. I mean, I would go to my, <laughs> I go to all my youth orchestra rehearsals in this big old dashiki and big afro, you know. But uh, <laughs> I was, I was gonna let them know, you know, I'm here, okay, and <laughs> that's that. But um, I've never felt intimidated, scared or nervous, anything. Um, so one guy, a reporter once asked me, do you get nervous playing for white people? <laughs> I says, I get nervous playing for black people too, you know? Because <laughs> <laughs> they will tell you, you ain't doing nothing, boy. You know? I mean, at that time when you were in that space, were there any black orchestral musicians you looked up to or any that you knew personally during that time? Yeah, yeah, I was hanging, you know, um, back then, let's see, when I was studying and playing with the Philharmonic, Bob Watt was playing horn in the Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. Bob Watt, Tinsley was playing bass, um, but Bob, (laughs) he still calls me, I think he's going off the charts, you know, but uh, Bob... (laughs) Uh, I looked up to um, to Bob, you know, Bob Watt. Uh, 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 we're two totally different type of guys, but I still respected him, and, and to this day, you know, to me, he's just a funny guy. And um, I looked up to that, um, and but I also looked up to, um, you know, I, I I got a lot of training listening to John Coltrane and Parker because to me I hear music the same way 
So I idolized Cannonball Adderley, and I idolized, uh, you know, Charlie Parker, and I, I, I musicians, good musicians. Wes Montgomery was one of my. You, when you listen to the phrasing that they're doing, their actual music they're making, it all made total sense to me, you know, on a classical level. And so I said, well, if I could do my Mozart as well as Parker can do his Cherokee, it's going to be okay, you know? And so uh, I, I looked up to a lot of different types of musicians, uh, singers from every genre. I mean, don't tell anybody, but I like country music too. <laughs> and uh, come to Nashville, then <laughs> you're in the wrong place. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the stories they tell, those story. You know, I it, it, I hear it. My brain hears it the same way. If it's good, it's good. If it's bad, it's bad. And uh, so my brain works that way. And um, but um, I've nef never been intimidated walking into a room where being the only black person ever. Um, as a matter of fact, I've always thought it's not my problem, you know. And my dad, I think it's, and I didn't know this at the time, but I think my dad was doing that to me. We would be looking at uh, there was a show called Johnny Carson. They they, they call Jimmy Kimmel now. Or, or some, you know, the Tonight Show. And they would have all these performers on there. And they were usually, most of them were white. And as we were sitting there, my dad would go, you're just as good as them. You're just as good as them. You could do that. You're just as good as them. And I'm like, Dad, you know, please. <laughs> and I think this subliminally, I think it just, you know, I think it just got into my soul of him telling me you're just as good as everybody. Because I never, I would always say, oh, Pop, please, give me a break, you know. But I think it actually did something. Yeah, that's a great attitude to have and a, a great um, uh, source of self-esteem. I am curious, though, if you realize, um, if it occurs to you, perhaps, that there are other people that might be looking to you um, as you know the representation on stage you might be seeing you um as the first black classical musician that they've ever seen and, and sort of drawing a inspiration from you or um thinking about oh maybe i could do this thing does that ever come to your consciousness oh from 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 the beginning from the very beginning uh i knew that i've always known that mm -hmm. and um it was um Oh yeah, and 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 I always felt, and maybe maybe wrongly so, but I've always felt that I have I, I have to represent. I've always felt I, I'm going to represent, you know, because I always feel I want uh, men and women who come after me that, to to have the door open, you know. I yeah, I feel like I represent. I've always felt that way, always, you know, and. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I've thought of that all the time, you know, and uh, just just being, as, you know, sometimes, sometimes all you have to do is just be there. You don't have to say one word, just be there. You're sitting there in white tie and tails, all you have to do is be there. And then... Um, 
One of my decisions to leave San Francisco Symphony, a second bassoon, to play principal in the opera, was I said, there should be a bassoon, a black bassoon, a principal in a, in a major group like this, you know, and this and that. I thought of that. And, and, and part of it was, it was selfish. There was some selfish stuff in there, too, because the world thinks in one and two. Now, between us, we know, I know, that my colleagues could sit in my chair any day. You know, I know that. But when you have the title, the world sees it differently. Oh, you're the guy. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I knew that going in. I said, you know, I'm going to be the guy. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, if I didn't win those auditions and I was still in the Symphony of Second Bassoon, I'd be fine. You know, I had some good people to play with, inspiring. And so, um, um, so I don't know, navigate or luck? You tell me. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think I it's know. a combination of all of them put together in. I mean, I have to say thank you so much for, like, talking with us. I mean, you're bursting with confidence. I'm feeling inspired. I feel like I need to go over and make some reads right now talking to you. So uh, <laughs> we have an opening night of Mala, too, reads. on Saturday. you like, you know, I'm just, I'm, and I get paid for what I do in this room. So I'm like, I need to get to, to what I need to do in this room where I'm in. So, you know, so I have make, to say. Make me some while you're at it. Yeah, I'll try my best. I mean. The diameter is a little big, and you know, <laughs> but I'm thinking. Uh, but it, it's amazing. I love you speaking about your story. As far as like, uh, you know, you 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 seem like you, you speak from your soul, and you play from your soul, and it's all a part of who you are and your makeup, and you're so proud and open about it. And that's very refresh, refreshing and beautiful to hear that even in a, in a time before it was even popular to really just be open, especially in that space that you just represented and who you are. So thank you so much for having this conversation with us. We really appreciate yeah. it. And I'm so oh, glad. Oh, I'm proud of you guys. <laughs> I am. I am. I mean, I've waited 45 friggin' years to meet you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. You have to pay way. You yeah, the official OG. You weren't there. That's the thing. I'm, I'm no. so grateful and happy to hear that you were conscious of the fact that you were sort of, you know, leading the way and um, taking on the responsibility of being that representative. Because um, honestly, yes, you, you did have to wait kind of a while to, to meet us, but um, the pleasure is all ours. And uh, we just want to express how appreciative we are of your place in classical music history and, and your place in, in guiding this path that we've uh, been able to travel down along with you. Yeah, thank you. I'm just thank glad you. I would live long enough to see you all. I'm, I'm not. You have no idea. I got to put on some sunglasses because I'm about to tear up. Where's <laughs> my sunglasses? But just to have you beautiful folks here, I, my head wants to explode right now. Mm. You know, uh, you make me so happy, so so happy, and mm. um, I wish the best. Thank you. You know play practice your brains out you know that's another thing the better you play the more people will listen to what you say yep absolutely <laughs> who would listen to Witten Marsalis if he didn't play like a god okay very good point so play good and then you know playing comes before talking absolutely and, and, and when you play good then you can pretty much get respect and say anything in our world you know
The Black Music Scene podcast was written and produced by David Norville and co-hosted by Joy Payton Stevens and Titus Underwood. Special thanks goes to Jennifer Arnold and Lexi Holloway. The Black Orchestral Network is sponsored by the Gateways Music Festival and generously supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. The Black Music Scene podcast is a product of the Black Orchestral Network, where our mission is to cultivate community, lift our voices, and tell our stories. If you'd like to get involved and support the Black Orchestral Network, please visit blackorchestralnetwork.org. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time.